0: Raw desire, burst of fire, she comes into view Striking with the fury of the wind, she turns
1: to you You don't lift a finger, let the bridges burn
0: This is it Night and
1: hello, everybody! Again, this is GradCast, the official radio program and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western. I am Susan, your host, and let me all just let, let's all just take a minute and appreciate that I didn't mess any of that intro up. That's mm-hmm. great. So yes, I am Susan, and with me is Ariel Frame. Hi, everybody! And at the pushing the buttons and producing this is Sabrina Hope. So if you hear another voice pop in, that's her. Hi, everyone. Awesome. So welcome again. And today we're going to have, I think, a fairly very special guest to me. This is um, right. Sorry. And I already messed something up again. I'm going to do a A shameless little uh, plug here for the Society of Graduate Students because we're putting on the Western Research Forum this week. This is a great opportunity for you to know what is going on on campus. The stuff you hear from us... Uh, every week on the radio or through your podcast, uh, you get to see it live. You get to hear talks um, from uh, people from all over, di- all the disciplines, all over campus. Plus, there's going to be a great uh, poster display. We're going to be there. It's at the Arts and Humanities Building. That's the old Ivy Building uh, in the atrium. Uh, They're going to have talks. We're going to interview a lot of the speakers, plus grab some poster people and chat with them. And if you're a recurring listener to uh, GrabCast, you may know the name Yamin Chen. Well, he's going to be a keynote speaker at the event. Um, So please come. No registration required. We would love to see you there. Now, again, back to the special guest, special to me and um, special to anyone he meets, I'd say. This is Joel Slade. Hey, Joel.
0: Hey, how's it going?
1: Joel is a Ph.D. student in, what, fourth year now, I guess. Yes, I'm, oh. in,
0: I'm in the, home. well, putative home stretch.
1: <laughs> putative home stretch. As you could tell, he's in the sciences. And uh, he's <laughs> in biology. Um, we know him here. Uh for, you know, as a bird guy, the bird guy, but maybe it, it didn't start all that way. So, <laughs> I hear rumors that you started in uh, hardcore fish physiology, was that?
0: Uh, fisheries Oceanography.
1: Ah, uh, Fisheries Oceanography. And yeah. where, where was that? That was in Antigonish right? Uh, nope,
0: that was at Dalhousie University Dalhousie. I in Halifax. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, in Halifax, so near the ocean, so that makes sense. Yeah. So, how did you start there, and how did you end up here?
0: Well, um... So I grew up in a really small coastal town uh, called uh, Musquodoboit Harbor, Nova Scotia. Um, yeah, it's really hard to say. Uh, and, it, you know, it's a great little place. Um, and I grew up uh, on my mother's side of the family, um, just surrounded by fishing as an as in industry. My uncle's a fisherman. My brother's a fisherman. And I just grew up. Right by the water all the time. I mean, I would be taking the sea stars off of the off the boats so that they would get it, like pulled in with the pumps and looking at it and analyzing everything. Even when they would pull a parasite out of a fish, I would want to know what it was. So I got right into marine biology and and um, oceanography because I wanted to know how the ocean really worked. So you know, I went took that at Dalhousie, um, but. What's really cool at DAL, they do some of it here, too, or across Ontario, is you get to do field courses. So I was in the co-op program. So one of my semesters had to be in in the summer. So it was all field courses. And my friends were like, you have to take the ornithology course. It must be so much fun. We're going to go in the middle of the woods and just, you know, chill and get to do stuff with birds. I'm like, yeah, birds, I guess they sound pretty cool. Went there, and... I was completely transformed like from one field to another. I never knew that for one that there were so many birds. That existed around us, especially during the breed, their breeding season, how colorful they were because a lot of these birds are, are little tiny wood warblers, right? So they're very small insect eaters. They don't come to feeders that often. But when you understand or you can actually identify them by sound and find out where they are and view them, you're just like, that looks like a bird that should belong in the tropics. And that's what they do in overwintering. So I got right, right into bird biology, right into ornithology. And particularly, I took a lot of behavioral ecology and animal behavior courses because I thought, you know, animals were incredibly cool. So uh, I then pursued a master's degree um, at St. Mary's University, which is just sort of next door to uh, Dalhousie in Halifax. And I studied, uh, uh, made choice um, in starlings and looking at uh, ornamentation. And um, yeah, it was a great, great uh, experience uh, doing that, which led me here because my supervisor uh, worked with my current supervisor um, during their overlapping grad degrees. So it sort of brought a connection to come to Western.
1: That's great. That actually brings to something I want to talk to you later about is uh, networking and connections yeah. and such. So here you are. You made it. You, you made it to Western. with uh, It's Beth McDougall Shackleton, right? Yep. And so what does your project involve? I, I may have put a little teaser out there saying, mm-hmm. you know, smells and communication. Yeah. So mm-hmm. what do we know? Um, it's not so much communication like, you know food over there kind of communication, It we're talking about this ahead of time, that it's more about how they communicate, how what good stock they are. Mm-hmm. What, what What's the term you used? I forget. I
0: use, uh, the term is honest signals of genetic quality. Okay. So whether or not they can honestly signal that they have uh, good genes and that they could be a good mate and that even if they mate together, they will produce offspring that have good
1: genes. So, what is an honest signal? And I guess added to that is like what what's a dishonest signal?
0: Um, so, in dishonesty, I mean, there's some birds out there that can sort of cry wolf a bit when they're when they're being attacked by a predator, or if they assume that there's a predator happening. And eventually, you start to accumulate something called cheating. In in this in this environment, and then they actually don't get much help down the road. There's a lot of studies that's been done on cheating and mobbing behaviors. That that's sort of
1: it's actually dishonesty. It's actually I don't know. Yeah, I don't think
0: I don't think it's cognitive. Like, oh, I'm going to be dishonest right now, but. The whole purpose, really, is to try to create honest signals, and if they do become dishonest, most of the time there's repercussion. Okay. Not always, but most of the time there is, because...
1: Well, once you've made it, it's kind of... You don't have a... It's too late, mm-hmm. right?
0: Yeah, and and, and uh, with when it comes to honest signaling of quality, it's really trying to look at, at, at the mate, mating aspect, at least from my research. So... A great example uh, is coloration in many animals. Um, brightly colored animals are honestly signaling their their quality. Um, they might, I've, you know, there's some papers that show uh, bluebirds with bright colors or bright blue plumage are really better parents. So, like, you know, choosing choosing individuals with bright coloration or even birds that sing a lot of songs have this capability of, of, uh, having, you know, higher cognitive skills might prove to be a better parent or might just prove to provide those genes so that their children will have the the skills as well.
1: So you mentioned plumage, uh, the brightness of plumage. Uh, you also mentioned calls and those are things that we see and we're, pretty much we're we're aware of it we we see like the bright red cardinal and the loud song he sings on the tree um but you are looking at a different kind of on a signal
0: yeah well um i look at two mainly in my in my work one is very common for this for this species so i work with song sparrows um a very uh common north american songbird uh there's tons of studies that's been done on them specifically on their song so I do work a little bit on their song but uh, one area of research that's sort of uh, growing and developing right now is um, olfactory signals so smell uh, in birds and they, birds are once thought to have particularly songbirds little those little guys were thought to not have a really good sense of smell at all like they couldn't smell the, you know it's all about how they look and how they hear and what they're singing and it's just you know it was completely overlooked for for really stupid reasons that were just perpetuated. So until uh, recently, some studies were identifying um, a particular substance that they produce, um, and a lot of people, if they just are going to the park, or if they're, or even if they have uh, friends who have like pet birds, they might see them do it. Um, what they do is they take this oil that they secrete. Um, in, it's from a gland that's located right by their tailbone, uh, called the uropygial gland, or to make it more simple, the preen gland. And what comes out of it is preen oil or preen wax. And they they take their beak, they rub that all the, that wax all over their beak, and then they they rub that all over their feathers.
1: Oh yeah, you see like ducks mm. and such. They yeah. kind of like they pull like it's almost like they're I thought they're cleaning off their feathers when they just kind of mm. pull their feathers through their beaks and bills.
0: Yeah, they do that uh, one way they do that they can pull up, put wax on their on their feathers, but also a lot of uh, birds what they're doing with that is they're uh they're zipping their feathers back together because like feathers are actually kind of if you look at them in the microstructure they kind of look like a zipper. So oh, they cool. they can actually zip them back so that their their structure is is really back to being nice and uniform and they can't get uh it, it, it uh prevents a lot of heat loss for them. And so does uh the preen preen wax as well.
1: So that's why I was wondering what was assumed that this wax was for. You mentioned heat or Um
0: well, yeah, so heat in the sense of um it will repel water because it's oil. So if a, if a bird gets very wet, um it will, you know, it, it could potentially get sick and die, and that's bad. So the first the first function that, that was very obvious about this uh, substance was that it's it's hydrophobic. So meaning that like it's... Like
1: water off a duck's uh, back. Water off a duck's back. Water bag. off it's a duck's back. Best
0: mantra, okay? There you go. Do that during your defenses, guys. Just keep saying that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they it helps protect them. There's also evidence that it helps, uh, you know, ward off ectoparasites. So sort of lice and whatnot. Um, but what wasn't investigated, particularly in songbirds, because when you look at a songbird's brain, you don't see a very overly developed olfactory bulb versus a bird like, um, a seagull or anything related in that group. Uh, seabirds have really, uh, large olfactory bulbs not because they needed to smell each other but more so that they needed to smell their food because they're going out to sea they need to detect where are those fish where are those um, crustaceans at and they need to go at it but it could have another an indirect uh, benefit too uh used in communication and uh, some research recent recently published research has shown that that they might be able to choose really um the best sort of mate based on the smell of of each other,
1: and that's in the seagulls
0: that would be in petrels they're they're like seagulls oh, okay. in a sense, but um uh, they're a seabird, they're the called sea pet they're called petrels, yeah,
1: but you said song sparrows they don't have this like a yeah. smell section of the brain. it's not very developed
0: well, it's there, but they don't think it like researchers uh thought you know well, they don't have a highly developed olfactory bulb. what's the sense of even trying to look at olf- olfaction in birds, but when you, when you think about it, every animal evolves in their own system, right? Just because they don't have a, just because the petrol has a like larger ratio of olfactory bulb to, to brain size than the than the songbird does, doesn't mean it's not going to be used, or it's not beneficial in any sort of, sort of way. So we chose to use a candidate compound, which is the pre, preen oil, um, that under heat. And, under, um, and with bacterial breakdowns can become volatile, which then becomes a scent. Hmm. So we decided to investigate uh, if, if that is a good way to communicate uh, genes uh, or their genetics, and in a sense, their genetic compatibility is what we're really interested in between the males and females.
2: So, I ima- I imagine when this idea, when you were forming this idea, you know, you maybe at some point working with birds had smelled preen oil. Um, what does preen oil smell like? That's kind of <laughs> <just> a <laughs> weird. Yeah, a I, I'm imagining, like, if I take mm. a bunch of pren oil, what,
0: what, what, what are the birds smelling? So, that depends on the species. And I had this question asked by one of my colleagues, and they said, You worked with starlings. I'm like, Yeah, I worked with starlings for my masters. They're like, did it smell bad? And I was like, no. I actually never smelled a bad smell from a starling ever. But in in another population, they were saying how badly they smelled. So um, some birds can smell Terrible. And one of my colleagues as well, one of my lab mates, she worked on uh, smooth-billed awnies down in the tropics, and she said, they smell terrible. <laughs> so I'm assuming that some birds can, like, do smell to us very bad. But when it comes to a small little songbird, I, you know, I've excised uh, preen wax, I've smelled it, you know, while trying to work with it, like, and I smell nothing. But that doesn't mean they don't. So, well,
1: then, if... How did this? You say a candidate system, which means yes. what the 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 um, the oil, the substance that you decided to work with. If you couldn't smell it, what what gave you the idea to use preen oil? Uh,
0: previous publications have shown that uh, that um, the volatile state of preen oil produces certain compounds, and um, they vary between sexes. And um, there's also been behavioral trials where they show that they prefer. A population over another population based on the smell coming off of the off of the wax.
1: Okay, so there has there was previous. Um show, there's previous evidence that they have a preference.
0: They have a preference, yeah, so it would be an experimental trial, like a Y-maze, almost, and, you know, uh, go, the here, go here, go classic Y-maze, where yeah,
1: yeah. you have, it's a, it's a fork in the road, and yeah. they pick the one with, the, with a different population. Yeah, like or a said? different,
0: yeah, pre uh, from, maybe a bird from a different population, or um, a relative or not relative, like, there's different types of experiments you can do with that, and uh, they, they worked on this um, uh This researcher worked on uh, dark-eyed juncos, which are also in the same Mm -hmm. group as song sparrows. So so
1: then this brings us to your research. mm -hmm. Now, what did you find? What were you looking for? And what did you find?
0: So what I was looking for in particular was... um, we were interested in this, in this gene, um, so there's a, there's a gene that all vertebrates possess, uh, or a gene complex, called the the major histocompatibility complex. And its ultimate function is- Do I have
1: to know what that means?
0: Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, no. All right. Or in, uh, anyone out in the medical field will know it as the human leukocyte antigen.
2: Um, uh, that, yeah, there's probably med, med, totally. medical people. It's, it's to do with the immune system. Yeah, stuff. So, like how do so. how do how do cells know what other cells are? Basically, yes, basically. Oh, so what like it does? Yeah. That. So okay. and histocompatibility
0: means tissue recognition. So like, uh-huh. can, it can recognize itself from its non-self. So when you're <laughs> infected with a virus. This uh, molecule will pick up particles of that virus and present it to cells in our body that will destroy the cell that's infected so that the the infection doesn't spread. So the whole idea is the more different uh, genetic variants we have on this gene, the more um, types of pathogens that um, the individual can detect that they're born with already. So they don't have to develop a type of memory to the pathogen.
1: So having, so let me just say, having mating with someone and having offspring that has a different complex than yes. you means that they can detect things that you're, you could and what your mate could. It's kind of um, like doubles their chances? Or Well,
0: if you are detecting a mate that has a different um so we're just going to call the major histocompatibility compatibility complex MHC from now on, <laughs> um, from here on out. So if, if you have a different MHC genotype, meaning, you know, you're not, you, you, you produce proteins that are slightly different, um, your mate, uh, you'd be better off choosing a mate that's different than you in a lot of cases, uh, because spring then we'll have a wider array of uh, ability, I guess, to detect more um, Viruses, bacteria, anything that make us sick.
1: So we can see why you picked that as something to look at, because that's a useful thing to bring what we call fitness to the next uh, next generation. So, what did you find? What did you? How did you look for it? So
0: we had to use um, uh, some very complicated uh, genetic techniques uh, called next generation sequencing to detect it. uh, we did it right here at Western at Robarts Institution. It was uh, We had great people guiding us. And one of the collaborators helped deal with all the, down, we call it downstream analysis. When we get, like, I prepped everything in the lab with my other colleague and, you know, and then sent it to him, like, you bring us the results, then we'll, but it's, there was still a lot more even further downstream stuff that we did. But um, ultimately what I found found or what we found in this project, the one that we're speaking of, at least with the um, olfactory sensing, is that the more um, chemically distant an individual is from each other, um, the more distant they are at their MHC. So meaning that if they don't um, smell, so if they smell quite far away from an, an individual, their MHC is going to be very far away from that individual, like unlike that individual. So it's we, we do this with distance measures. Mm-hmm. but basically the, the what the correlation does is just to say, is chemical uh, dissimilarity um, related to MHC dissimilarity, and it is. And yeah, we published that research in Proceedings in the fall, which was really a nice. Proceedings of the Natural, no, Proceedings of pr- Proceedings B, people. Not, not, yeah, there's so many different proceedings because people might be like, ooh, PNAS. I'm like, no, not that one. <laughs> um, but, you know, it would have been cool. Back to the
1: abbreviations are yeah, right. like the common terms within yeah. uh, departments and stuff.
0: Yeah, there's different types of uh, proceedings. But uh, yeah, Proceedings for the Biological Sciences is yeah. what we it in but it was it was an interesting find um especially since song sparrows are so studied on their song every everyone focuses song as a way of communication not to say that song isn't important because it is but there could be another way of uh, assessing a good mate with these Mm -hmm. guys
2: yeah. So that's uh really exciting that you you published in a, in a journal at all. You said, "Oh, no, it's not this other <laughs> journal that maybe would have been better, but you know, for a, a new student, me yeah. being a new student, uh hearing that you published at all sounds sounds incredible." So uh can you maybe give us uh a feeling of how you went about publishing and choosing what journal to put it in and you know, mm-hmm. what what was the process that you went because a lot of people struggle, you know, they do their research and then when do I publish, and where do I publish, and how do I do that? So but I'm you've not done it. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm not going to take the credit on this one, like fully. Oh, this was all self
0: guided, all self written, all done. No, my, I have an amazing supervisor. Like, she, like, we talked about it because it was very novel. Like, this was a novel find, and we're thinking maybe proceedings might be a good fit. Plus, they had a good turnaround rate. So, for people out there, um, if you can find out what the turnaround rate is, meaning if you submit an article um, and they can give you the result of a yes or a no, or maybe it may needs some major revisions or we might have to reject it until you make these revisions. If there's a shorter wait time, the better. And that means we can push it out to another journal. So uh, Proceedings was great. They gave us the results back quite quickly. Uh, It was rejected, uh, but, but... we we had aren't
1: they
0: all yeah so so yeah journals nowadays there's a lot of this we reject this article but if you make these changes you're allowed to resubmit but back in the day it used to be if you're rejected you reject it that's it and then it used to be just major revisions minor revisions fully accepted so after the changes were made we made like one more minor revision to it and then it was fully accepted so um, yeah so it basically you definitely talk about it with the supervisor. That's that's what I suggest, too. If you have a
2: supervisor, ask them. So, I mean, that brings up a good point that Mm -hmm. we wanted to kind of ask you about um, because you had experience with a a really good supervisor, Mm -hmm. and people uh, really vary in in their experience with their supervisors. You know, I mean, a lot of people might be listening to this and and struggling and being like, you know, I really don't necessarily get along with my supervisor. So, Mm -hmm. from someone who had a supervisor that you really got along with, you know, what can you say about... Being a supervisor, I mean, who knows if you may even be a supervisor yourself. Um,
0: so basically, like, what really makes a really good supervisor is one who's attentive. Um, you know, well responds uh, responds to emails quite well too, I, and you know, has meetings. I mean, like, you know, at the beginning of a start of a project, you should be meeting regularly, whether it's weekly meetings, one on one, and and also. Um, weekly meetings with the lab to bounce ideas off your lab mates um, you know, that that's really helpful and if they're going to sort of criticize your ideas or say you know, I think this should be done a little faster or you're going a bit slower, there has to be a way to do it. I mean, every personality can handle things differently um, for me, I had a fantastic experience, you know, there's and I, and I appreciate straightforward honesty and I appreciate it uh, said in a way that, you know You know this will help your career come on you can do this I you know or if you are experiencing any type of mental stress or if you're experiencing any type of issues health issues that they're understanding of that as well so that makes a good supervisor and you know there's a lot out there that are fantastic I definitely brag that I have a fantastic one all the time to to a lot of my colleagues, and they're just like, okay, you know, like you know, and not to say that theirs are bad, but I'm I'm you know, I, I really like the environment that I'm I'm in, and I thrive. And sometimes people's personalities just really jive, and sometimes they don't. And my situation, I left out; we jive, you know, really, really well.
1: So, so one thing I remember um, about about you through mm-hmm. the years now that we've known each other um you have a great way of uh, giving help and guidance and mentorship and i really like that so do you have any suggestions for people maybe since you're you're finishing up maybe starting off in grad school anything about you know how to put your name out there how to you know things that maybe Mm -hmm. who people who don't have the best supervisor some suggestions you'd have for people
0: um the best way to get your name out there is uh, there is social media platforms. I recommend Twitter for scientists. It, that is the best. I, I and I learned to l- I've love heard it that a
1: lot. Yes. Yeah.
0: Also, ResearchGate is fantastic. Um, it's a great like little community. You can ask questions there. LinkedIn's okay, whatever. It's not really built up really for scientists as much. Um, and uh, yeah, I would say I would say ResearchGate and Twitter would be the best way to get yourself out there and, and try to be approachable and make a website for yourself. You know, there's WordPress, there's all of these different websites, make a website, you know, talk about what your research interests are on the website, get your CV on there, keep it updated. And, you know, put that into a signature in an email, make sure that all of your information is available. So people can see that you're active, that you're doing things, and that you are seeking to to keep going on with this. And that's the thing, you just got to Put yourself out there.
1: So I guess that um, brings me to my next question: Is if anyone wants to know more about your research yeah. or any you know any tips or anything like that about especially hearing how kindly you speak of the academic world and how again I cannot recommend you more for someone with mm-hmm. great advice. Um, is there a way they can contact you like through yeah. social media?
0: Um, so my Twitter uh, handle is at Evo. So. Evo eco Joel. So the E's are capital and the J's capital. So Evo Eco Joel.
1: And uh do you have and, a website? And I do have a website, okay, cool. yeah.
0: Joel Slade dash or hyphen biologist dot com. Um oh, nice. And uh <laughs> yeah, there and my email Jslade twenty three at UWO dot C A is another way to contact me.
1: Great. Well um is I'm thinking we're about wrapping up now, Serena. Yeah. Time awesome. will Thank you so much, Joel, for coming in. It's Not been a such a Anytime. pleasure. And I can't wait to see what you got next going on.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.